Good evening and welcome to Pastor's Class again as we walk through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And I want to encourage you, if you've not already picked up our Christ-centered exposition commentary, it's a recommended resource. You can go on Amazon, you can pick it up uh, anywhere online, and it's a great readable commentary that you can walk through. Many of our outlines and our points and some of the things we're going to discuss are all coming from that book. It helps guide our study. And so if you've not uh, read one of those before, they're great to sit down and just kind of walk through the Bible and help you understand it better. It's a great first commentary if you've not had one before. And so it's the Christ-centered exposition commentary for First and Second Thessalonians. And so make sure you go pick that up. It is a resource for our class. But we're thankful you're joining us tonight as we walk through this study of this book. And so we're going to just take a few minutes walking through uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. So if you have your Bible out there with you, uh, we'll be talking about different sections of the text uh, tonight. So it would be good to have that out as we walk uh, through our text. But I'd like to read the verses to you first, and then we'll kind of talk about the main ideas. Don't forget, right there, whatever digital format, we've got a link posted there that has the handout. So if you want to follow along with the points I have for tonight, and you want to write them down, you can find all those points there available in the handout in the link. So let me read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 beginning in verse uh, 13. It says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not, not as the word of men, but as what it, it really is. It's the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who, bo who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so also as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the great message of hope we can find in it. And Lord, we just ask that as we spend these moments in your word, it might be an encouragement to our hearts, nourishing to our souls, and strengthening to us in our walk with you. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. You know, the Bible uh, is a precious book to many of us. We have a high view of Scripture. We look at the Bible and think highly of it and the message that it is to us. But the true test of how much we trust it and love it is how much we actually obey it. Just because we believe the Bible is high in our lives doesn't always mean that we see it has authority, that we see it is actually the Word of God that holds sway not only over us, but over all of creation. Because as we approach the Bible, it's actually a book that is old and timeless and covers all peoples for all times from all cultures and all languages. It's, it's a weighty and authoritative book. 
So when we approach a book like that, sometimes people want to come to the Bible and find new vision or something new that, the, that they might come to the Bible and I want to hear some sort of new revelation, some sort of new thing. But in many ways, when we come to the Bible, we want something that's old, that's timeless, that we can trust. I don't want some religion that was made up today. I want something that's been true for all people and for all times. You know, new's not always good. In our culture today, uh, new has a tendency to be the thing. We've, we've created everything out there to uh, have planned obsolescence, that it'll be, you know, one day we're going to have to buy another one because it's going to wear out. And so we're always thinking, what's the new iPhone or what's the new this? What's the new that? And we're always looking for new, but oftentimes new's not always a good thing. You know, my son and I were out uh, playing catch in the backyard the other day, you know, baseball season now pretty much been wiped out from the coronavirus. And so we're out there playing catch and I bought him a new glove. So he's out there throwing and I toss it to him. It goes into his glove. And as it goes in his glove, it, he's trying as hard as he can, but it, it falls back out because the glove's not broke in. If you've ever played baseball, you know, after you break in a glove, it bends in. And, and my glove, which I've had for years now, uh, when you throw a ball and I close it down, it, it, it clamps down on that ball because it's, it's broke in. It's got some age to it. I, I don't want a new glove. I want my old glove. I want the, the glove that I've had for a long time. That's what's valuable to me. And the same thing when you come to the Bible. I don't want some sort of new vision or some, something new. I want something that's old. I want something that's lasted throughout the ages. The faith that's once for all delivered to the saints for all people, for all times. And so when we come to the Bible, hold this high view of scripture, 1 Thessalonians 2 talks about this message that's for all people, for all times, from God. So that's, if you're taking notes, you got your structure there. The first point I wanna draw your attention to is that God speaks, he's speaking through his word, but in particular there, if you see under there, the Bible is God's word. The Bible is God's word. It's his word. Now, that, if you've been a Christian very long, that kind of rolls off your tongue, but that's actually a very weighty statement to say this book is God's word. Try going out into the public square and making a statement like that. You'll understand just how significant it is to claim this is God's word. Look at verse 13 and how it says it. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received, and there's the phrase, the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So notice the two phrases there. It uses the phrase word of God twice. And some translations will say uh, the message of God and the message about God. There, there are two things really portrayed here in those two different phrases. The first one is the, that it being the word of God is the message is about God. It is God-centered. So when you pick up your Bible, when you read the gospel, the center focus is on God himself. So a lot of times I know it's hard to believe, but everything's not about you. And I know a lot of times when you wake up in the day, the first person you're thinking of is you. When you go to sleep at night, the last person you're thinking of is you. It's easy for this world to be centered on you, but that's not the center of the Bible. The Bible is not about you. Now, admittedly, it does have bearings 
on you and it does speak to you and it does have tremendous influence on you. However, the Bible's about God. He's the main character. The book talks about him. And when you open that Bible, you're not learning about you. You're learning about God, which then in turn teaches you about yourself. God himself is the center of the message, but it's not just the center of it. When it says the word of God, it's the message from God. It is God's word himself. He is actually speaking these words. Now, I know that's kind of a strange concept if you think real hard about it. Now, again, I've said this. If you grew up in church, you think about the word of God, it's just, oh, yeah, that's, that's God's word. However, if you think hard about it, that you're saying this book written by many different authors and all different languages and different times, you're going to claim that all these books written by men are actually God's word? That, that's a weighty statement. How is it that you see that this book you hold today, unlike any other book that's ever been written, that's compiled of multiple different books, how is it that you can understand this is God's word? So I'll give you three words. This comes from the Christ-centered exposition. Uh, I'll give you three words that will explain, I think, how it works. The first word is revelation. That is God revealing it to man. So think about it in steps. It is God to the authors of the Bible. God is revealing this message to them. He is speaking directly to them. Now there's two different types of revelation. There's general revelation and there's special revelation. Now, general revelation is when you see creation, I know that there's all this beautiful creation, I know there's a creator. So I can see through creation, generally, everybody can see it. Romans 1 talks about this, that everybody can see it, so I know there's a God. That's something that God has revealed to man in a general fashion. But there's special revelation, things he's said in a special manner. And when we speak about that, that's the Bible itself. God has revealed himself in a special way, a very clear and specific way through the Bible. Here is God giving his message to man. Well, that's only step one here, is that God is speaking uh, to and through these authors of the Bible, like he would be doing here as he's having Paul write this book. But that's not the only step in the process. It's revel there's revelation. There's also uh, inspiration. Inspiration is what happens at the point of the author to the text, when the author writes down the Bible, from the author to the very page of the Bible. This is when God himself is inspiring man to write the scriptures. This involves him using their different personalities, their different places in life to speak to man. So it's interesting here. A lot of times I've, I've even heard people say that um, describing the authors, that they're simply just pen holders. That, that I'm just, I'm just, if you were an author of the Bible like Paul, all he's doing is saying, God, God what's the next word? And just writing it down. But that's not, that's not how inspiration actually works. It's, it's, it's more amazing even than that, that God is supernaturally inspiring that man to write that text and in the moment is 
somehow pulling back their sinful nature and using their own personality to write words that are from him. That's why you see such personal notes in here. This isn't, doesn't sound like it's from God. This is a letter that sounds like it's from Paul. Because God is using Paul's personality to write scripture. He is inspiring him to write it. This is why uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 describes this picture. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were, and here's a good word for you, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were carried along. That's how you should see that this that the Bible is speaking, is that God is taking these authors and he's carrying them along. He is breathing his word. It is God-breathed in the sense of he is inspiring them to write. So God reveals it to man. Man then writes the Bible. He's inspired by God. Now there's one last step because now the words are on the page. But just because the words are on the page doesn't mean that they're actually speaking to me. And the last step is illumination. Meaning that the Holy Spirit now has to illumine and brighten and lighten my heart in order for me to be able to understand the text of Scripture. Now, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 speaks about how the man of the flesh, a person who's not a Christian, who does not have the Holy Spirit, is unable to understand the things of God. But only those who have been born again, who have the Spirit of God, are able to understand God speaking. Meaning that the Spirit of God must illumine men's hearts so they might understand the message of God. So the process of getting the Word of God to you requires God revealing that message to the authors. As the authors then write it, He is inspiring them through their personalities to write His Words And then once those words are on the page, it's not enough. The Holy Spirit then must come in your heart to illumine your spiritual eyes so that when you do read the biblical text, you now understand what you are reading. So when the Bible says this is God's word, that's how it got to us. From him revealing through the biblical author's writing, through the text that's on the page, to now through the Spirit of God at work in your heart. That is his word, the word of God speaking to us. That's what we want to put our faith in. That's when we open up the book of the Bible. We, we want to be able to put our faith in this message. That's why it says here, just verse 13, is that we thank God constantly for this when we received the word of God which you heard from us. He's thankful because they received this true and faithful word of God. Now, to press it further, this word is about the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's your second sub point is that this the Bible is God's word and it is about Jesus Christ. It is focused on him. So when we speak about the word they received when it uses the phrase here in verse 13 when they thank God constantly for this that when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Okay, we've talked about how it got to us, how we call it the word of God, but what actually is the content of the message? The content of the message they're receiving there is Jesus Christ himself. He is the word of God, and he is the central focus here of the message of the gospel. And so when they're receiving this message they're hearing, it's about Christ. The, the Bible is focused on Jesus. 
He is the central focus on the message, and that's what's going to bring about the change we see here. It's even going to talk about in this passage, the end of verse, um, uh, and in verse 13, he says, which is at work in you believers, and we'll talk more about how it transforms. Uh, chapter 1 talks about how that the, the message here of the gospel is, is changing people's lives, and it's being heard throughout all the kingdom. All this change happens because Jesus is the focus. He's the one bringing about change. So when you teach the Bible, and all of us will do it in some form or fashion, whether it's in a devotion that you're asked to give in a certain place. Maybe you're a, a teacher in some uh, Sunday school or some place. Maybe, maybe you're asked to share a word of scripture with somebody. Maybe even as you're reading your Bible in your home, there are going to be times which you will read the Bible and have some moment to explain it. When you do that, make sure that you point people to Jesus. He is the central focus of this message. He is the great scarlet thread by which scripture is uh, read and tied together. And so you should always point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's speaking about the word of God, this great message, what we can rely on, what we can trust in. But I want to give you a second way in which uh, the Bible is at work and what, what happens when the Bible comes along. When the Bible comes along, people respond. It calls for a response from people. And there's a couple of different ways that people respond. The first, first way people will respond to the Bible is that we receive the word intellectually. It's, it's not had simply, um, you know, that it's emotional. There's actually something going on logically with us when we take in the word. Notice the phrases here when it describes how they accepted the word when they hurt, when it came. When... Look at verse 13, when we, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you, and here's the two words, you received the word of God, which you heard from us, and then look what it says, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. So there was this, in their life, this response that came about because the word was given. It wasn't just that we read the word and we all moved on, but when the word was given to you, you received it and you accepted it. There, there was a response on their part that created this life change. So uh, when we speak about receiving and accepting, this is a cognitive, logical, on face value that this thing makes sense to you. You say, I, I get it. I believe it. Uh, I think it, it's a logical thing for me to put my faith in. This is a good reminder that when we engage people with the gospel, it's not simply you giving a, a speech and you leave it alone and you give the word and you walk away. You, you, you should engage them even with their objections and their questions. You should be, while you're giving the gospel, listening to people. I think a lot of times we think of when we go to give the word of God and give the gospel, like happened right here, that we're just going to give it and walk away. It's my presentation and then I'm done. But in many ways, we have to make sure the person is receiving it. There is this exchange back and forth and we have to make sure they're understanding it. And so we need to listen. We need to ask questions. We need to talk to them so that they can fully embrace the gospel. I would even press this further to say sometimes we're quick to give a quick message 
and say, w would you like to take this Jesus? And the person says, yeah, I'll take that Jesus. And we've never asked enough questions to understand there's a whole lot of other areas of their life that are not lining up with the gospel. And sometimes that might even produce a person who's not even truly a Christian. We've not actually talked to them long enough to understand that they're not really receiving the actual gospel. They're just receiving or praying a prayer with us or doing something quickly and moving on. We need to make sure that a person truly understands and embraces the gospel for what it is. So ask questions. Listen when you are sharing your faith with someone. Don't just, somebody says an objection, don't just plow through it. Talk to them about where they're at. So there's this intellectual assent that they give to the gospel. Here's a second one. They also welcome the word internally. So they receive the word intellectually, but then the word here, accepted or welcomed it, they do this internally, inside. This is more than just saying, I believe a logical truth. This is saying that I am accepting this and giving my life to it. I'm internalizing it. Uh, th let's take the two different words. Uh, this word for uh, accepted or welcomed, as I think you might could put it, is that you're taking the, the Bible and welcoming it into your life. Now, think about welcoming somebody into your home. Now, maybe something that you've kind of forgotten how to do over the past couple of months as we've all locked up away. However, think about when you invite somebody into your home. You stop what you're doing. You greet them at the door. You might hug them or give them a handshake, which again, you may have forgotten how to do that too. But all that to say is that you might welcome them. You stop what you're doing. You bring them in, offer food, whatever it might be, and you invite them in and change everything you're doing to welcome them into your home. The same thing happens when we welcome the word in. We form everything we're doing around the word as we internalize it in our lives. It's coming in to change how we live. And so you see that by them saying they accepted the word of God. Their lives were marked by change. They welcomed the Word of God so much in, we talked about this in chapter 1, that people were talking about their faith all over the entire area. There were churches everywhere going, I know about the faith of those at Thessalonica. Because they had welcomed the Word in, it had such a marked change in their life, people heard about it. That's what happens when the Word comes in to your life with the Gospel. So it's an intellectual um, assent to say, I believe it, I understand it. It's also a internalization to say, I accept this, I receive it, I'm changing my life. And then there's a third way in which the word is at work. The word transforms. So people are responding. The, the word is this truth from God, but now it has this transformative effect on people's lives. It comes in and changes them. So let's look at these last few verses. Look at verse 14. It says, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So let's, let's look at the first phrase, imitators of the churches of God. Okay, a couple of things. I know oftentimes we think about imitating and we use terms in the Bible, we, we personalize them, which is great, and it causes us to individualize them. But notice what he's saying here. You as a church have imitated other churches. 
we are a corporate body and should be looking to and saying, there's a church that's doing something that's faithful and godly and we should be doing it as well. We, we want to be like them. We want to be faithful just like as a believer, I might imitate another believer that's walking in faith with the Lord. It's nothing wrong for another church to say, man, I see a ministry this other place is doing. I want to do the same thing. And so that's what should be happening in the life of believers is that when the word comes in and takes an impact and effect on us, we go and start looking and saying, where are other people that are more faithful or walking or more mature than we are, or maybe that have found some way to obey the Lord and serve the Lord that I don't know yet. I'm looking for them to find a way to grow in my faith. I'm going to imitate them. And I think about, uh, many of you have probably seen this with uh, teenagers, when people grow up, uh, and if you've ever seen a kid grow up, you'll see them and they're kind of the sweet child, sweet child, and all of a sudden, somewhere in teenage years, I don't know if you've ever had this with, with a cousin or somebody you've known, all of a sudden you show back up at Christmas and they're like a different person. They come in and maybe this, this time they're wearing, they've got like all skater gear on and they've got certain jackets and certain things they wear. All of a sudden one day they, everything they wear is like basketball shorts and they're dribbling a basketball around and it's like they transformed into somebody new because when they got to a certain age they found a group of people that identified around some sort of image or look or hobby and as soon as they found it they bought every piece of gear and their life just built around this particular thing. And you say, well, what did they do? Did they go into it and the person that was in charge of the group or that was more mature and had been doing that longer, did they pull them in and say, let me tell you, here's a list of things that you now need to do so that you might become uh, uh, more like us. That's not what happened. The kid just showed up, looked around and thought, I don't have a jacket like him. Hey mom, go buy me a jacket like that. And so he just started imitating everything he saw. And the same way should we at work in our Christian lives. As churches, as people, it, the way we imitate and grow as a Christian, it shouldn't be one of those things that you're waiting on somebody to come to you and say, all right, well, here's your list of things you have to draw, grow as a Christian, and here's your task list, and off you go. While be, while be, those are helpful, as a Christian, it's a lot on you. You need to walk around and find and say, I see him being faithful at memorizing scripture. Okay, I'm going to try to imitate him. And I see, I see her being faithful. She's really a prayer warrior. I'm going to try to imitate her. I, I, I see what he's doing, how he's you know, steady and committed to sharing the gospel. I want to try to imitate him. Our, our lives, we should find people and, and churches and places that are faithful and try to make sure we are imitating them, becoming like them as we pursue the Lord. And so that's what's going on with the uh, Thessalonians. They've seen another church. They've seen other places that are faithful. They want to be like them. They begin to imitate them. And what's interesting that really creates this spiritual growth uh, may not be uh, what you always think is a part of the recipe. N notice what it says there in the second half of verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. What, what created this bond and spiritual growth? Suffering. Going through difficult things together. I, I don't know if you've ever found somebody else who, maybe you experienced some sort of tragedy or suffering in your life, and there's, there's nothing quite as refreshing as meeting somebody else 
who maybe has been through this before and looks at you and says, hey, I know where you're at. I know how you felt this day. I know how you felt this day. And I know what the road is like. And I can tell you how to walk it in a faithful way. There's, there's nothing quite like that as a Christian. And so when you have somebody that you can imitate and walk after like that, as you walk through suffering, there's nothing quite like the recipe of the Word of God and the people of God with the suffering that's placed in our life to create growth. The Lord may be currently using your suffering right now in some way to make you grow. So there's nothing like suffering and how it bonds believers together to have them grow in their faith. Now, there's this last verse is going to be an interesting one to end on. And it's one you may not be as comfortable reading. As you read it, it feels almost, just to be honest, hateful. But I want to I want to dig into it a little bit and give you a moment of hope and show you a little bit about what bothers Paul so much. So look at it there. It's uh, the, the last point. I'll give it to you, and then we'll do the verse. The word transforms our direction. So when the word comes into our life, it changes our direction. And so verse. 16, 15, 16 speaks a lot about who Paul was and how his life changed from this. But let's, let's just look at it and then we'll read it. We'll, think, we'll talk about it. Uh, verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Talks about, talking about the Jewish people. They killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They displease God and oppose all mankind. What a pretty harsh words, right? To speak about the Jewish people, he's saying some pretty terrible things. And then he presses it further, verse 16, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sin, but wrath has come upon them at last. Now, if you just had these couple of verses, you'd really think Paul hated Jewish people. Paul was a Jew. That was his background. And everything he's describing there from persecuting Christians to, um, you know, hating God in the sense he describes it here, everything he's describing there, something he was. That, that was who Paul was in his past. But if you just took this verse, you might think he hates them. But if you take the rest of the Bible, there's verses, we just went through this and in Romans 10 and 11, He'll speak about this great burden he has for the Jewish people. He'll even say, I wish I myself were accursed and lost so that they might be saved. I mean, he has this deep burden that they might come to faith in Christ. So he has a great love for them. But what upsets him so much here, I, I would guess probably is the beginning of verse 16. It's hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Paul has such a passion and a burden for people that are lost that he, for the Jews here who he speaks about, he, he is so burdened, he'll say, I wish I might be accursed. But, but then when, he, when they get in the way of him giving the gospel to the Gentiles, it really upsets him. He, he, it bothers him that they would hinder the gospel from going to other people. This is a deep burden that he, get, he has for 
the gospel. I, I hope we have this kind of burden. It, it's an anchoring, um, you know, like a compass that sets our direction. It, it, it puts everything else in perspective. That when the gospel is laid out and my goal is only in faith, then everything else is placed there. And even for Paul, how he would see the Jews and if then they get in his way, how he sees people that he's trying to reach for the gospel. His whole goal in all of life is that people might come to faith in Jesus. I pray we have that kind of burden that we would hope and desire for them to be saved. But then one last little glimmer of hope here. With this terrible description, how awful he'll describe the Jewish people. Don't forget, Paul was saved out of that position. He would have described himself with those very words. He'll actually later say, the, the, call himself the chief of sinners. So however terrible this is, he would see himself at the top of the list, understanding that the grace of God is greater than even all of those sins. So, so as you read that, you like, man, he's saying something terrible about them. If, if you think that's just terrible about them, and there's not some terrible things about us apart from Christ. You don't understand the depth of our sin and just how terrible of a, a people we were without Christ. That's the great hope of the gospel is God saves the worst of sinners of which we are. And so when we look at this phrase and hear these harsh words, we shouldn't see somebody who's hateful. We should just see somebody who understands the depth of sin and personally, in Paul's life, he understand, he understood the depth of God's grace to save such a terrible sinner as himself. May the word of God continue to transform us, give us this deep burden for the gospel, and be useful to us as we live out the Christian life. Let me pray for you, pray for you, and we'll be done tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Strengthen us to walk the days that are ahead. Help us to lean on what you have said to us and that strengthen us that we might obey you, imitate those that are faithful to you. And Lord, give us this deep burden for those that aren't followers of you. And Lord, give us, even right now, as we think of people we know that are far from you, that we might think, man, I don't know how that person could be saved. Lord, give us great hope and renewed encouragement today that there is hope in the gospel and that you can save anyone. Lord, walk with us in the days ahead. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.